Well, good morning, everyone. You sound wonderful today. I love being here with my uh, church family, worshiping God together. Hey, it's a great day to be with us. We're in the third week of a series on the book of Ephesians called Identity Thieves. So if you have your Bible, your phone, or your message notes that you got when you came in the door, we're going to begin at the end of chapter 1, uh, but then we're going to park ourselves in chapter 2, the first 10 verses. So go ahead and get there, get ready. You'll be ready to roll when I get started in just a moment. But I, there's another great reason why it's good to be here today. Uh, we're officially kicking off today something that for me is one of the, my favorite times of the year around here. It's when the heart of this place, I think, is perhaps on its greatest display, uh, and that is, is uh, the generosity of this place. So every year at about this time, we kick off a, a, a new ministry opportunity called My Christmas Gift. So each year it's named My Christmas Gift and the year. So this is My Christmas Gift 2019. And this is where above and beyond our normal giving, we give a little bit of money to help God's work. We talk about it here near and far. So here is kind of within this building things God's doing here. We talk about near means our area here. So several of the surrounding zip codes and then far can go as far away as Kerala, India, where we have our girls home and boys home and the church planning work that we have over there or Cuba. And then this year uh, we're launching into Africa, which is going to be just amazing. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to tell you about all that really, really cool stuff. But for those of you that know the routine around here and you've been a part of this for years, uh, you can go online, you can use your envelope today, you can use a check, and you can write my Christmas gift, you can choose my Christmas gift and all the electronic giving options, and you can begin to give to this uh, opportunity to bless our world here, here, near, and far. But I want to tell you about something that's already happened. So we just launched this this week, um, officially, and our membership meeting uh, last week, several people stepped up. And we had our first two uh, gifts, really, given to my Christmas gift. And something dramatic has already uh, occurred, and I wanted to just uh, share that with you. But um, let me just catch you up with the story first. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, every day in our school, there are kids who come into school, and they don't have necessarily all the economic uh, advantage that everybody else has. And so even in our area here, which is the north suburbs of Cincinnati, this is true. So what that means practically is there are a handful of kids on uh, free lunch or reduced lunch, um, or they bag a lunch and then other kids buy lunches. But every day in schools around here, there are a handful of kids who have run up against what's allowed in terms of budget, in terms of school policy, against what they can run arrears in in their school lunch account. So every day around here, there are kids who have no money left and no credit left. And so instead of getting a hot lunch, they get what is sometimes called the brown bag of death. It's a sandwich and maybe a couple of other things. So it's healthy. They're not going to go hungry. But then they carry this back. Often there's a lot of shame and embarrassment attached with that. And so uh, I was talking with a teacher uh, in our um, church about that recently, about the needs in her school, and, and asked her to do some investigation so she sent a communication this week that said, um, so far, um, right now, actively, there's about 100 and, um, or so uh, families, kids that are affected by this barrier of uh, being in arrears past 10 days. And so they're going to continue to get, if they'll take, this cold lunch. And so she got together uh, um, this information for us. And because of your generosity already, as a part of serving near here with our Christmas offering, um, the months and arrears up to date, November, December, and most of January is already paid for. So in that local school already, no kid has to get the brown bag of death. Every kid that wants to can get a hot lunch because of your generosity already. Isn't that really cool? Yeah, that's a big deal. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to tell you all the different ways that the Christmas gift, my Christmas gift 2019, is going to impact here, near, and far so there's some really uh, neat opportunities and challenges in India. There's some stuff in Cuba, some stuff emerging in Africa. So that's the far. The near is the stuff we've been doing with New Life Chapel, where we feed our hungry neighbors in the Hamilton area with the healing center in the Tri-County area, where we help people who need a hand up as well. And then these schools. And then there's a couple of other really cool stuff I'm going to launch out with you next week. And all this stuff gets paid for above and beyond our normal budget during the Christmas offering. And so some people are like, church is always about money, blah, blah, blah. But this is the time of year where we don't really talk much about us and we talk about what God's gonna do and we try to our best to go above and beyond what we normally give and make this happen. And so just thank you. And I, I gotta say where I, where I am on this. So I am not embarrassed one bit to stand on this stage and ask you boldly to give to these causes. 
They're what I believe in. It's what Jill and I do. It's what my kids do. It's what our staff does. We will lead the way. You do not. You'll be catching up to us. So if we don't do it, it doesn't happen. And yet at the same time, every year, this church has an unbroken record of being generous. And I just wanted to say in advance, thank you. You're going to be blown away at what God's going to do with a little bit of money that the truth is, is most of us have a little bit more than we need anyway. And so when we just give out of our excess, just out of our excess, God does dramatic stuff. So thank you. I'm excited to tell you about it over the next few weeks. Well, let's um, jump into Ephesians chapter 1. This is the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesian church. Let me catch you up a little bit to the narrative of what's going on. For two years, Paul parked himself at Ephesus, started a church, dramatic challenges, dramatic opportunities. God did great stuff. And then, because he was under house arrest, Paul was moved to another city, slowly making his way to Rome, where his case of being an agitator against the Roman authority is going to be heard at a court in Rome. So he's now left Ephesus. He's probably in the city of Corinth. Rome, Ephesus, and Corinth are kind of the prevailing cities of the Roman Empire. And he's writing now under house arrest, never more than a couple feet away from a Roman soldier. He's writing back a letter to a group of people he cares about that he spent two years with. In a big way, his heart is there. When he left Ephesus, he put in charge a young man that he really believed in, a guy by the name of Timothy. Paul wrote letters to Timothy, and every letter to Timothy is really written to the pastor at the church at Ephesus. So Paul loves this church, and in this letter of Ephesus, six chapters long, takes you about 20 minutes to read it, start to finish, Paul expresses his heart for these people that he loves. And so for the last two weeks, we've been looking at kind of the situation and the, what's going on, and so far what we've learned is, is that the big lesson of Ephesus is the better you understand Christ the better you'll understand who you are as a disciple of Christ. Uh, the clearer picture you have of Jesus, the more comfortable and clear you are with your own identity. The more you understand what it means to be in Christ, the bolder and the more comfortable you walk as a disciple. The more you understand that you're in him, the more you can live in the world and not be overcome by the world. So this is really all about our identity in Christ. And the truth is, is that everywhere you go, there is an assault on your identity. There's an attack for you to believe a lie about who you are and who you can be. It's always presented for you. It's in front of your children. It's in front of your grandkids. It's in front of your spouse all the time. Buy this product and you can be something different, something better. Have this experience and you can be something different, something better. Make up for this perceived gap in you, this fault in you, this brokenness in you, and you can be something better. But for the follower of Jesus, our identity is not in these experiences. It's not in what we purchase. It's not in our title. It's not in what we do. It's not in our bank account. It's not in our press or our follows. Our identity is sealed in Christ. And so now the senior leader of Ephesus is gone. A new leader is there, and there's some, I'm assuming, some turmoil, just some challenges of who are we. Things are changing. So Paul writes back and says, I want to remind you who you are. And so in chapter 1, we discovered that who we are in Christ changes everything. So knowing more about God teaches us more about us and the world that we live in. And so when Paul talked about this, then the next thing out of his mouth is he's talking about worship. That when you know who you are in Christ, man, it makes you want to worship. You're not dead. You're not dull. You're not defeated. What you really are when you're in Christ is you're alive and you're energized and you're ready to roll. Because who you are in Christ changes everything. And then he closes the chapter where we're going to start today. And he talks a little bit about prayer. He talks about prayer. Now, let me tell you something I didn't tell first service because I like you better, maybe. Or it could be that I just forgot to tell them. But anyway, you're going to get the added benefit. I'm going to give you a little insight. When you listen to somebody pray long enough, you can discern what's on their heart. Now, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks anyway. So if you listen to somebody talk long enough, they'll eventually tell you who they are and what they value. That's just the truth. All right, that's a little psych uh, psychology there, a little counseling training. Just get them talking and listen. And eventually, what's in the heart is going to bubble up. It's always true. Over time, nobody's just quiet. No, the values always come out eventually, all right? So when you listen to somebody pray, you get to hear what's on their heart 
spiritually. More than once, parents, let me, let me tell you how you leverage this. In a good way, not a manipulative way. When your kids hear you pray, it tells them what's on your heart, perhaps more than you'll ever teach them as you mechanically open a Bible. Now, this is an oh-my-goodness moment for some of us because the truth is, is for a lot of parents, their kids never really hear them pray. I don't want to beat you up about that, but I want to tell you the greatest, perhaps, tool you have to express your heart for your kids spiritually is to pray with them and pray for them. More than once in my teenage years, when I would come in late, I would hear my parents praying. And often I'd stand by their door and they would be kneeling by their bed. I know it's very old fashioned. I'm so grateful I had parents who were not fashionable. They would kneel by their bed and they would begin to pray for God's work in our family. And it was almost daily that I heard my parents call out my name before God. God, you have a call on his life. Don't let sin be too attractive. Don't let him buy the lie of the enemy. Help him know who he is. Can I tell you what that does to you over time? So it wasn't just I'm in trouble. God, help our kids or we're going to kill him. I mean, there was a little bit of that praying in our house too. But I'm talking about just the overflow of a parent's heart for their kids. So if you don't do it, I'm just telling you, it's a tool that you're leaving in the bench or in the tool chest when you should pull it out and leverage this. So Paul's now going to pray for the congregation at Ephesus. And what's on his heart is beautiful. I get it. I'm a pastor. What's on his heart for that church is very much what's on my heart for you. And then beyond being a pastor, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. What's on Paul's heart for these spiritual children he has? This is very much what's on my heart for my kids, biological and spiritual So with that said, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, and let's hear what's on Paul's heart. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this stuff. That's why um, it's in the Bible, and that means it's not meant only for them, but for us as well. So uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, here's what the Bible says on the screen if you want to follow along. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We have to pause here. I pray, so this is his prayer, that the eyes of your heart, now your heart doesn't have eyes. You know this, right? You've done enough biology. You've had enough uh, human anatomy. Your eyes doesn't have hearts. He's not talking about biology here. He's talking about that part of you that discerns the deepest things about life. So beyond just knowing something about God, which is maybe in your head, Something can penetrate your deepest thinking, your soul. In fact, the heart where this stuff happens, you can actually like not know it, not feel it, not understand it. It can be stuck in the head. But there can come a moment when the eyes are opened of your heart and this head knowledge now is alive for you in a special way. So Paul's saying, I don't necessarily want you to learn more about Jesus. Maybe you need to. But what I want is, is that I want you to know enough about him that it goes from the head, travels at 18 inches or so into your heart. And when it does, look, now look at his heart for his, for his congregation, for his people, he says, that your eyes of your heart may be open so that you may know the hope that you have. The hope. I mean, if there was ever a time that families in North Cincinnati need hope, it's now. If there was ever a time that our culture needed hope, it's now. And for the follower of Jesus, Paul says there's something that can happen down deep inside of you so that as a follower of Jesus, you can know hope. The kind of hope that speaks louder than the circumstance. The kind of hope that no matter what the past or present is, you look forward to the future. The kind of hope that means as you look to the future and it looks daunting perhaps, you see beyond the daunting challenge to what it can be on the other side. When you have hope, even if your kids are going through stuff, I mean, it affects you, but it doesn't affect you in the same way as it does if you were hopeless. If you have hope and your marriage is struggling, whatever's going on, it affects you. But when you can hold on to hope, there's just a little extra something there to engage the troubling circumstance. We have hope in your job. 
that it can get better. It may be difficult, but the fact that you have hope means that you can be more present and actually think about thriving instead of just surviving. So Paul says, let me tell you what I want for you, Ephesians. I want you to have hope. I want God to do something so that the eyes of your heart are opened and you get some hope. And for the next several verses through chapter 2, he's going to explain mechanically how hope can come to a disciple. I want to take you on that journey today. It's a, it's a two-act play. It's a two-chapter book. It's a two movement story of how a believer, how a disciple can have hope. But before we even get to the mechanics, I want you to see how he describes this hope that you can have. And as I read it, some of you are going to be a little disturbed because he says this kind of hope is available to us. But the truth is, is for a lot of us, we don't have this kind of hope. So starting at the top again, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. So you're rich. You have an inheritance. You're God's holy people. Inheritance, that's powerful language in the ancient world. It's pretty powerful today. You have a glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So the hope that you have is is because you are incredibly rich through the inheritance of being a son or daughter of God. And there's great power available to you. How great? The kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. So pretty potent stuff. You have that kind of power. This is the power and the riches that give you hope. It's the power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21. Far above all rulers and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So you're connected to Christ and Christ has everything under his feet. And did you catch the next line? And then you're his body, which means if you're his body and everything's under his feet, as his child, everything's under your feet. You get it? This is the image of hope. So let me ask you, follower of Jesus, do you have that kind of hope? Do do you know Christians who have that kind of hope? Do you know Christians who don't have the kind of hope that seems to be energized by incomparable grace, incredible riches, unlimited cosmic power? Exactly, you got it. That's Disney. That was Aladdin. Exactly. Yeah. Do Do you know about it? Has it impacted you? Paul's now going to take us on a journey, a two-act play, a two-movement story to tell you how to have it. But i got to tell you, in my opinion, the verses we're going to read are the top three or four most offensive chapters in all the Bible for most people. Now, his heart, where he's going to take us, is to have the eyes of our heart open so that we may have hope. That's where we're going. But to get there, he's going to start in a pretty dark place. This is the kind of stuff that when people want to criticize Christians, this is the kind of stuff that often populates their conversation. They talk about Christians as people who have a masochistic approach to life. They are all about their their destruction. They're all about their sin. They're all about their shame. And the implication is, is that if we could just get away from some of that religious talk, then people wouldn't have guilt placed upon them when they behave certain ways, and people would be more free. And if we could just be more free, then everybody would be more free. And if we could just be more free, it would be more free. But Paul's going to take you on a journey that's anything but, at first, freeing. In fact, it's a little heavy. It's the same dynamic Jesus had happened to him, by the way. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but there's two big things happening in the life of Jesus when he's on the earth. The first one is, is everywhere he went, people loved him. They were drawn to him. Crowds were attracted to him. People who didn't like the things Jesus was saying sometimes were still drawn to Jesus. People who didn't follow Jesus wanted to kind of be near Jesus. 
This is true. Crowds went everywhere he went, whether it was because he taught powerfully or because they saw miracles or he, they got some benefit of being around him. We don't know all that possible. But crowds followed him. That's movement one. The other movement is just there came a point in Jesus' conversation when the implication of what he was saying started catching on. And the Bible says at that point, the crowds began to fall away. And what Jesus said at one point in the Gospels, this, this is just a hard, understand, hard to understand. It's like the truth was hard to swallow. At one point, one New Testament writer says it this way, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that's Jesus. But think about it. It's two moments. It's rejected, but the fact that he's rejected is true. But even though he is rejected, he's the cornerstone, the most important block in the entire, ev- in, in, in the entire edifice. And so I'm just trying to get you set up for the fact that this is countercultural language. It runs against pop psychology. Dr. Phil and Oprah aren't going to like this, just to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, it describes a human condition that isn't popular. And I'm not suggesting that we're going to park ourselves here, because remember, the whole reason we're talking about this is so that the eyes of our heart can be opened so that we can have hope. But sometimes, in order to get the full impact of a conversation, you have to start at the beginning, because the beginning is a very good place to start. Well, when I was uh, in second grade, I was um, evidently a little bit of a challenge in a class that I was in, a reading class that I was in. And one day my teacher came and she said, you're a really good kid, but when you're in class, it's a challenge. I, I, she, that's me reading back on it as an adult. What she really said is you're just a headache. And um, this was back when teachers didn't have a lot of training evidently on psychology. And she was just very direct. And she said, uh, I think that maybe you're under challenged. So I'm going to, now we're about six weeks in, I'm going to put you in this other reading group. And maybe there you'll be challenged enough that you won't have time to be a distraction. Okay, whatever. So I remember going into this class, and those kids were sitting around. They had a chapter book in their hand, and they're reading out loud. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, these kids are so smart. And they're, like, reading without stumbling, and they're doing so well. And I'm thinking, I am an idiot. So at the end of that first day, I go back to my teacher, Mrs. Larson, and I said, Mrs. Larson, I am not that smart. I don't, I don't want to be in that class. She said, here's the thing. They're not any smarter than you, but they've just been having the conversation. That's not the word she used. That's what she was telling me. The word she used was, they've just been doing it longer. So they're all familiar with what to do, and they've all had practice, and you're just now catching up. In two weeks, if you still feel the same way, let me know, and then we'll adjust. Because obviously she didn't want me back in her classroom causing trouble. Well, what, I, what, what she was teaching me was is that if you catch the middle of a movement, sometimes it's hard to understand what's really going on. But if you start at the beginning, it's a little easier. And the problem, I believe, as a pastor, hear me for a second, in a lot of believers' lives, and it's the fault to some degree of churches and pastors, so I'm going to, my people, is that sometimes we start in the middle of the conversation, and when we do that, the full impact of the conversation is incapable to grasp. So what Paul does when he writes back, he's in prison. And maybe he's thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get a lot of time to communicate anymore. So we're just going to, we're going to take our time and we're going to start at the beginning. So here's my heart. Your eyes will be open, eyes of your heart, and you would have hope. Hope that's built on the incomparable riches of God's grace, God's immeasurable power, the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead, the fact that you have an inheritance in Christ. That's the hope. And then he goes into chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. These are not positive verses. I want to focus on two big words here. In chapter one of chap, uh, uh, in verse one of chapter two, as for you, that's our first word. If you're taking notes, you can circle that word. The word is you. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people, and this you is both a corporate you, it's the plural you, but it's also meant to be applied singularly. So it is all of you, but it is at least individually you as well. 
This is the you that our culture doesn't enjoy. It's the you that sometimes I don't enjoy. See, sometimes when we think about the challenges in this world, we know that there are bad people. In fact, one of the reasons why we're celebrating Veterans Day tomorrow is because we have some incredibly awesome people who put their lives on the line and their families sacrifice so that the rest of us can enjoy freedoms. Why do we have to do that? Because there are some incredibly bad people in the world. So we need some good people to put a line of defense between us and the bad people. So thank you, veterans and families, sincerely. But the whole reason we have to do that is because there's some ugliness in the world. And we know there's some ugliness in the world. There's ugliness out there. We can all see it. You watch the news. You pay attention to somebody's story. Nobody lives very long until the ugliness that exists in the world comes close to them. But it always seems to be out there. It's those people over there. It's the people who make us put locks on our doors. And then we put locks on our locks and we put a security system with cameras and maybe a dog there as well and perhaps a gun because, you know, this is Westchester. And so we do all that stuff just in case the bad people get through, right? We all know there's bad people out there. There are bad countries out there. There are bad people out there. And if you live in this general region, most people, not all certainly, tend to identify more conservative. If you talk to politically conservative people, they'll tell you who the bad people are, won't they? It's Hollywood, it's MSNBC, it's the Clinton News Network, and it's all the ladies on The View except for a couple that are on there just as token conservatives, right? Those are the bad people. They're not us. It's, catch the pronoun, it's them. It's not me. It's those folks over there. And of course, the irony is, is if you talk to people on the other side of the spectrum, the very time that people are talking about those people, those people are talking about those people. And they're what's wrong with the country, and they don't get it, right? And religious people are no different. If you're in a particular religious vein of thought, then everybody that's not in your vein of thought, those are the bad people. And that's the problem with this discussion about evil. Nobody minds having it so long as it's about them over there. Those people in that neighborhood and those people in that office. So a lot of time, we think it's people who live a long time ago that were the bad people, but we're educated and globalized. We're sophisticated. We know a lot. And so it's bad was a long time ago, but we're that's not really obvious and intuitive either, is it? Because you don't have to go very far to realize that even in our education, sophistication, and globalization, real challenges work, are at work in our world. But again, it tends to be out there, and sometimes it touches us. It's a decision made on Wall Street that comes back and shows up on Main Street. But Main Street's not the problem. It's the parents of the millennials, if you're a millennial, right? It's not the millennials. And if you're a generation ahead of that, just bump it down, whatever the next title is. I mean, it's always somebody else. But when Paul wants to help his congregation understand how to have hope in the glorious riches of God's grace, in the incomparable power that comes with being connected to Christ, he starts by saying, you, not them. And there was a lot of thems then. There was the Roman army. There was the oppressive powers there. There were the political ugliness that happened among the Jewish religion, of which Christianity right now is still a subset. And so there's all these people that Paul knows who has his heritage, but it's those people out there that are persecuting. At one point, Paul was one of them. The challenge with talking about evil is that it's easy until it's up close and personal. So Paul starts the story by saying, I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not talking about them today. If you want to have hope, the story begins with you. You, here's the second big word, were dead. You, dead. What kind of dead? Dead in your transgressions and sins. I mean, there's no 
sideways energy. There's no lack of clarity. Paul's speaking with incredible candor. I love you guys. I want you to have hope. So let's start. Here we go. Lesson number one, you're dead. You, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I know at Ephesus it's hard, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about you for a second. Now I can tell you as a pastor, this is a really difficult conversation to have because you come to church to be encouraged and you should. But if you're going to have hope and real encouragement, then sometimes starting at the beginning of the story and recapturing exactly what happened is essential. So that's what Paul does because he loves these people. His heart is not to tear them down. He wants them to understand that they are part of the problem. And in their lives, they are the problem. And until they embrace the fact that they're the problem, they can't be in Christ. When Jesus first came to the earth, Mark records his first words for us. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but Mark sums them up in a sentence. That Jesus came preaching this phrase, repent and believe the good news. Two parts. Repent, mm, believe the good news. Okay, good news. Don't like where I am, don't like the circumstance, good news in Christ. It's true. It's just not complete. The complete gospel is repent and believe the good news. Moves you forward. Everybody loved Jesus. Because, man, he was just so gracious and kind and did so many amazing things. And people who were outcasts were embraced by him. We love that Jesus, don't we? We love And it's true. But Paul said if you want to have real hope, you've got to embrace the whole story. It's Jesus saying to the, to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Like, I don't need judgment for you. Yeah, I love that Jesus. Isn't that awesome? No judgment. Do you know the next line? Go and sin no more. Oh, wait, wait, that's a future edition. Didn't Paul write that? No, 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 no. That's the letters of Jesus. That's in red in your Bible if you paid enough to have a red letter edition. That's Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Oh, I love this Jesus that you guys talk about. It's go and sin no more. Why? That's so judgy. Paul said, listen, if you want to as a disciple have hope, let's begin where the story begins with you. You were dead. In your transgressions and sins. And maybe your parents were too. And they were. Maybe it was your sibling. Maybe it was your boss. But there's something connected to your hope. The kind of hope that gives life. That energizes. That when the story is reflected upon, it begins very dark and offensively. You're a sinner. And your sins, your sinfulness brought death to you. You weren't alive. You weren't trying harder. You weren't being good. You weren't doing the spiritual math. You were dead. This is always hard to talk about. I've raised four kids, three and one more almost done. And um, we're at that point where we're kind of looking forward to it. Don't tell them, but Y'all go on, get on with your life. Mom, I got things to do. That's kind of how we're feeling right now. Um, but there was a time when they were younger in the house, right? And guess whose fault it always was? Someone else's. I, 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 this is your brother. It's my brother over here, right? I remember one time my kid didn't do their homework, and within four minutes, guess whose fault it was? Mine. Right? And for about a minute, I almost believed it. Like, oh, I got to take on the responsibility. Wait, wait a second. What are you doing? It's really easy, right? Paul wants to make it clear that unlike the typical breakup story, do you know the typical breakup story? If you're about to break up with a girl and you don't want a lot of drama, you know, you know what you say to them? It's not you. It's me. Now, you, now you don't believe that. You say that. So that you don't have to get into the middle of the whole thing about what it really is and you just don't like the way she fill out the blank. So you say, to keep the conversation short and simple and get out as quick as you can, it's not you. I'm being gracious here. It's me. Paul's making it clear as the Holy Spirit inspires him. God looks at us and says, let's get something clear. It's not me. It's you. That's what's going on here. 
God's saying, this ain't, it ain't my problem. It's you. You're a sinner. Now, maybe bad things happen to you. I regret that if it did. I'm not trying to minimize that. Maybe in a real sense, in some ways, you are a victim. That's true. But underneath it all, there's also some other stuff going on. That you are broken in your sin. And remember, the whole point of this conversation is hope. But he begins with verse number one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In your message notes at the bottom, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed. Sins in which you once walked when you followed the course of this world. 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine said that the world operates this way. And we, Paul said, all operated in the ways of the world. Here they are, three big things. The world is obsessed with money. The world is consumed with the desires of the body and sex. And the world is obsessed with power, getting it no matter what it looks like, grabbing all that they can. The world worships these three things, and the devotion to these three things has wrecked many lives. They prop themselves up as gods to us. They get our devotion. We give ourselves to them. And Paul says, in effect, you and I followed the ways of the world. And maybe these three ways or other ways, because the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit is now that, that is at work, is keeping these things attractive to us. And so by our own desires, we are enticed away at the attractiveness of these things. And so in verse 3, we all lived with the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is where we were. And sin isn't so much something that we do, but sin is a condition that we're in. We didn't do a few sins and become sinners. That's not what Paul's saying. We're actually sinners, we are dead, and because we're sinners, then we sin. You don't cheat and steal and then become greedy. You're greedy, so you cheat and steal. And where does this come from? It comes from the fact that we are separated from God. And as separated from God, we are dead. Maybe you're like me. In the back of your refrigerator, there's some buried Tupperware. Do you have any buried Tupperware? So we have four men in our house. And a few months ago, we had had a meal, and there was some leftover meat that wasn't very frequent in our house. Most of it got eaten every meal. But we put some of it in a Tupperware container, and it sat there, I don't know, three, four, five years, I suppose. Because when we opened it, noxious fumes, green gases flooded the house, right? Now, when that smell came out, nobody said, let's put a little ketchup on it or some A1 sauce or some salt and pepper, right? No, no, no. All that happened was this meat that was already dead did what dead things do. Over time, even though the refrigeration slowed it down and masked it a little bit, even though we had cooked it, dead things decay and produce destruction, ugliness. And that's us, by the way. It's real easy to blame everybody around us and our circumstances and our situation. But spiritually speaking, the only person responsible, the only person who must embrace the fact that they are dead for you is you. And until you do, the story of hope can't be yours. As for you, you were dead. This is chapter one of every single disciple. It's an ugly beginning. And since you were dead, I want you to look at this next verse. All of us who lived among the men in time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath. But we love talking about the wrath of God, don't we? That somehow God is not okay with our sin. But isn't it God's business to forgive? And so since God forgives, it's not that big of a deal. I just want to submit to you, it's actually quite a big deal. Our sin is a big deal. It's a big deal in one sense because God knows that sin will harm the people he loves. And so he gives us rules to obey, not to restrict us, but so that the freedom he offers us can truly be ours. It feels so free to drink all the alcohol you want, doesn't it? College. Woo. 
until it's not anymore. Doesn't it feel so free? Some of you remember, I'm not trying to pick on you. Some of you remember how free an adult you felt that first cigarette you took? And a pack a day later, a few years later, you're like, I don't feel so free anymore. That's pretty expensive too. God loves us enough, he gives us rules about protecting things. Sexual things, intimacy things, mental things, physical things. So that it doesn't bring harm us. But the other thing is, is that God's just holy. And sin and God can't survive in the same space. And so we were deserving of God's wrath. My kids were never deserving of my wrath when you talk to them. They never had a reason. It was always something else going on. When I taught, it was never my students' fault. I've never had a single couple come to me and say, Pastor, here's the problem. I'm incredibly hard to live with. I'm selfish at times, and I speak before I think, and my anger runs a little too. That's never happened. And then the other person says, oh, no, no, don't listen to him. The truth is, Pastor, it's me. I'm the one who's struggling being a great disciple in this marriage. It's never happened. Every time somebody will say a little bit of, yeah, it's a little bit of me, but really, really. Hey, it got so bad that I quit meeting with people who wanted marriage counseling until both people were in the room. Because it literally just became a, let's talk about the other person all the time. No, 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 no. Maybe some of that's true. But you want to get hope? Start with you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and you deserved wrath, chapter one. I don't know the ways that you sinned, but I know as a sinner, you were pretty creative. I know you were. I've been. And I've been creative about hiding it so you don't get to know it, just like you have been. And and I've been really good at redefining the rules. I know it says this, but what it really means on this. In fact, if you go back to the ancient Greek, what it really means is I get it. I get it. That was for Paul in his day. It's culturally contextualized. Of course, of course. But you want hope, disciple? Stop that foolishness. Hope with Christ begins with, I am dead and cannot revive myself. I've never known a dead thing ever one one day say to itself, I'm kind of tired being dead. I think I'd like to be alive. I'm going to do whatever I can to get... No, by death, it means you're dead and you don't really pursue chapter one. You're dead. I want you to now turn with me to chapter two in this movement. We're actually looking at Ephesians chapter two. Let's pick up with verse four. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions, sins, mistakes, faults, wrongdoing. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In verse four, if you're taking notes, there was you and dead. Let me give you two more words. Verse four, but God. This is the second chapter of every believer's life. It's the most important conjunction in all the Bible. It was ugly outside, but God put Noah and his family in the ark and shut the door. It changed everything. Daniel was in the lion's den. It wasn't looking good, but God closed the mouths of the lions, the Bible says. Elijah is with the 450 prophets of Baal, and it's dark, and there's a cosmic showdown happening. And it's not going well at all. But God shows up and brings lightning onto the altar and brings great victory. And you and I were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, showed up and changed everything. You want to have hope? This is why Paul's doing this. He's not trying to revel in darkness. He's not taking joy in bringing up the ugly. But he knows if you're going to have joy as a follower of Jesus, you can't think that God just kind of helped you out. Yeah, my life's going pretty good, and I got Jesus too. You know people do this all the time, don't they? I mean, you know people like this. That is not discipleship. That is not Christianity. Hey, try a little harder, do a little better, give a little more. 
Maybe you need to try a little harder or do a little better. Maybe you do. I don't. But that's not Christianity. The message of Christianity is you were dead and could do nothing, but God came along and did something for you you can't do for yourself. And Jesus goes on a cross. He's lifted up. In the world's eyes, he's lifted up in shame. But in heaven's eyes, this is the pinnacle of his existence. This is the glory moment. He's lifted up. And he takes on himself all of the wrath of God that you and I deserved. But if you don't think you deserved wrath, the cross isn't so awesome. But if you know you were dead and couldn't save yourself, like if you're not hiding behind it at all, and you're not blaming the church and blaming the pastor and blaming your parents and blaming your friend and blaming your boyfriend, and if you're not doing that stuff and you know deep down you're a sinner, the cross is a beautiful thing to look at. Because in the cross, Jesus takes on all of God's wrath and does for us something we could not do for ourselves. He does the work. And you know how you know he knows that he's doing the work? Because when he gets done, here's what he says. You know the phrase Jesus used? It is finished. I did the work. I suffered the wrath. And then what's the proof that the work Jesus did was acceptable to God to cover the wrath? That God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the proof that the work Jesus had done in bearing the wrath on the cross, that's the proof that it was acceptable to God to wipe away our deadness and our sins. And this, when you connect through to Christ through the work that Christ did, not the work you're trying to do, not your try better efforts, not I'm doing a little bit better than the person next to me. When you connect to Christ because you were dead, but he made you alive, now that brings hope. It's incomparable riches, immeasurable grace. You sing the song Amazing Grace, and it's hard to swallow down the lump Lifeless Christians who don't accept the fact that they were sinners, who don't know the depth of God's grace, have a hard time singing the words amazing grace and sounding as if they're being authentic. It's amazing because you and I were not amazing. It's amazing because I was dead, but I'm standing here alive. It's amazing because I was stuck in chapter one, but God turned the page for me. And, and, and what kind of power did it take? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why Paul in another place says that, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It's the first indication of all those that are going to be made alive again. I just want you to look at what it says he did for us then. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in verse 6 in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The same phrase that he used at the end of chapter 1. So now you want to have hope? Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Not just chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. The incomparable riches of his grace. Grace has given me something I have not earned. Mercy is withholding judgment that I deserve. Grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not by work so that no one can boast. Now, if you picked yourself up by your bootstraps and you did the work, you have great reason to celebrate yourself and your accomplishments. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is your best efforts could not revive yourself. And when you have that picture and you remember that in that exact moment, God came to you and rescued you, it does something in here. We no longer sing songs about a God who sounds like he does some good stuff for other people. Now, if you're a disciple, you were dead, and you're not anymore. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, and the incomparable riches of Christ are yours. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your mortal bodies. You're living a chapter two kind of reality, and it means then that worship takes on a different experience. When you embrace your story as a chapter one you were dead in a chapter two, but God, then the rest of the book, chapter three, four, five, and six of Ephesians, you're ready to receive whatever Paul has to say because you started at the beginning of the conversation. 
If you've been around dead and lifeless Christians, I have. I've been one. Can I tell you what's probably been forgotten? What's probably been forgotten is I was dead. I was dead. And I can explain it to you a lot of different ways why it happened and, and this person and the heart and then the... But I was dead. And God rescued me. For me, it started when I was five years old. I didn't understand it. I'm 50. I just now am beginning, I think, to understand how amazing grace really is. Paul says, if you get it, look at the last verse in here. For we are God's handiwork. The Greek word there is poema. We're the poetry of God. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for God, uh, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So while we were dead, God prepared you to do great works. That's the plan he had. So get up because God has shown up and fulfilled the life that he has for you. You and I were dead, but God showed up and it has changed everything. And there are people you know, and they don't even know they're dead. It's hard to know you're dead when you're dead. They don't know. But you know, because you were there. You were dead. You were blind, but now you see. So sometimes you have to care for them because they can't care for themselves. And you can't play the Holy Spirit for them, but you can talk about the gospel. You can tell your story. And I, I struggled with, like, what's a good metaphor here? I need metaphors. I'm a word guy, and metaphors help me grab a hold of complex ideas. And I shared this experience in another setting, and, and you just have to excuse me because it was a, honestly, it was a watershed experience for me in, in, a, in a real way. Just a little bit over a year ago, I decided I'd go out one more time with my kids on the boat. Some of you know this story because I love being on the boat. It's fun for me. It's a lot of joy for me. And I had some of my favorite people in the world on the boat, some of the people I work with, and some of my kids were with me. And we we're just having a great time. And I'm on the tube, and we're having a blast, and everybody's laughing. And we're not being too crazy. But for hours, we're just pulling each other around and knocking people off, getting back on. We've got our life vest on the whole bit. So I'm being pulled around on the tube, and something happens. I don't know what happened. We think maybe I was a little dehydrated. I went through all kinds of tests. Can't find anything wrong with me. But we hit a wave. And on the video, I'm 10, 12 feet in the air. And I'm out. I'm out cold. I'm knocked out. And I land in the water with the life vest on, head into the water, and I take on a lot of water. Moments, minutes pass. My son's screaming, something's wrong with dad. And they circle the boat around and turn me over. And I'm purple and stuff's coming out of my mouth. And I'm not breathing and I'm not responding. And people are jumping off the boat into the water to get me. There's nothing I can do for myself. I'm dead. I'm gone. Minutes, I'm unresponsive, not breathing. Somebody's like hitting my face trying to revive me. Somebody's shaking me. They pull me up on the back of the boat on the little teak wood platform there and they start motoring into the dock. I don't know any, I don't remember any of it. I see the video. I don't remember anything because I'm dead. And if it weren't for people who were concerned about the fact that I was not well, didn't know it all, my kid, my son actually thought I was dead. That just breaks my heart. My son had to go through that. But if there weren't for people who cared for me, I couldn't care for myself. This is what your heavenly father did for you. You're just going about life oblivious to what's right around the corner sometimes. But the truth is, is we're all spiritually dead. Your grandkids, your spouse, your neighbors, and we all need a but God kind of experience. For God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He loves us enough. He jumps into the middle of our mess. He takes it on himself, pulls us up, brings us to new life. And I'm just telling you, when that gets in you, it's easier to have hope, no matter how dark it is, because it doesn't get much darker than you were dead, but you've been made alive in Christ. And that, that's why the spiritual giants of history can stand and sing songs like Amazing Grace, even when life is very ugly. That's why people can face a firing squad and not give up or renounce their faith. 
because I've already been dead. To be dead again doesn't sound so bad as long as I'm with Christ. That's why people give ridiculous amounts of money to help the Lord's work, to help other people become alive in Christ. That's why people spend ridiculous amounts of time. That's why people put up with the mess of the world and the mess of the church. Because once you've been dead and brought back to life, everything else, if you remember it, it's not as daunting. And Paul says this is the proper place to think and reflect on the fact that you are the poetry of God, that he's writing something beautiful with you. Chapter one, you were dead. Chapter two, but God. Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a step or two together today. Next step, Bay says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. That's really all we've been talking about today. And I had the profound sense that uh, over the last couple of weeks as I was reflecting on these passages, getting ready for today, that this would be the moment that some people would move from chapter one to chapter two. That you would trust the work that Jesus did for you when he took on the wrath of God. And you would put all of your trust in that work so there wouldn't be any work you would do. You would only trust the work that Jesus did. And you would receive his grace. You would believe it. That's what faith is. You would believe it. Jesus, your work is enough. Trust the work. You would believe that God raised him from the dead as proof that his work was enough. And that belief, that faith, would secure you the grace of God. The faith and the grace are both gifts. If you want to do that, take the pen, check next step A. Pray with me in a moment. God, wash away my sins. I cannot save myself. I'm dead. Save me. Bring me to new life with Christ. Save me. And then lead my life as my Lord. Put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end and we'll communicate with you about what it is to be a child of God. Next step B, I want to be baptized. And think about baptism. I'm dead and I'm brought to new life with Christ. I'm dead to this world now and sin and I'm brought to new life in Christ. I was dead in my sins. I'm brought to new life in Christ. That's what baptism is. It's like such a celebration. It's the clearest expression of your testimony. If you haven't been baptized, uh, let's make that happen. Check the box. Next step C says, memorize Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Hide God's word in your heart. Here's what it says. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. That's your story, disciple. That's yours. Claim it. Claim that story. Next step D says, please send me a link for registering for the grow classes. The next one is November 17th. It's grow three. The first week of every month is grow one. The second week of every month is grow two. The third week of every month is grow three. So grow three, November 17th. And this is about discovering your design, some of how God's wired you and how you can help find your place in the kingdom of God in a way that fills your soul. The next step E says, hey, I'll help decorate our church for Christmas. We're doing this on Sunday after church at 1245. If you check this box, we'll send you the link. Make sure we have enough snacky things for you to eat for lunch and all that. And then we'll get our church ready for all of our guests. We're going to have a bunch of them this holiday season. It's going to be great. Why don't you set that card aside for just a moment? If you call this church home, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. So our Christmas gift is going to be spectacular this year. And I'm just blown away that for a long time now, over a decade, you as a congregation, some of you for over a decade, some of you just a couple of years now, some of you just this year, this is your first time through with us. But you've been doing something pretty profound. You've been giving enough money that this church is stable with its budget. So thank you for that. That's essential. That's the foundation. And beyond that, you've been giving a little bit more, sometimes a lot more, so that we could do ministry here, near, and far and like really splash big and make a big difference in the pond. So thanks for that. And over the next few weeks, I'm gonna tell you a lot of the ways that money's gonna go out. I think you're gonna be blown away. If you wanna give to the Christmas gift, you just need to indicate which portion of your gift is for the Christmas gift. So you just write it on your check, you put it in that category electronically, you make a note on the envelope, Christmas gift 2019 or just Christmas, that's where it'll go. The first couple of gifts are in. Some big stuff has already happened and a lot more big to come. I can't wait to tell you the story because here's what I know about you. You are a generous church and you're willing, you're willing to invest in people who sometimes don't even know they're dead. 
and you're willing to invest in those that have been made alive in Christ so that the gospel can go forward. So thank you for that. I love your heart and I love being a part of this with you. Let's pray about our offering and our next steps right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus who made us alive, seated us in heavenly places. God, I thank you for your incomparable grace. I thank you for your measureless power. I thank you that we have an inheritance as your sons and daughters. God, I want to thank you that you've raised us from death to life. And I lift up those right now that are making that decision right now to step into life with Christ. They're declaring, Jesus, save me. I confess I'm a sinner. I confess I'm dead. I cannot save myself. Would you wash away my sin? Would you cover me? I want you to lead my life. Be the Lord. I trust the work you did on the cross and in your resurrection. I trust in that alone. And Father, would you make our church to be people who are lit alive with the hope we have in Christ. That we do not wallow in chapter one that we were dead, but we don't forget it either. And we were dead, but God showed up for us. Thank you that we get to be a part of you doing your work in other people's lives. So take our next steps on our offerings and cause them to go far and wide. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.